As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. This is a joy, so lean forward, Global Wall Street. And for those of you who are removed from Global Wall Street, this will be a clinic. His name is Stephen Eisman. He's Senior Portfolio Manager at Newberger Berman and the Eisman Group and has a nodded acquaintance with a movie of a few years ago, Big Short. Th- thank you so much for joining us in studio. It's been like, you know. I think it's been three years. Three, three years. years. Almost or, exactly, yeah. Or, or, and, and, and such. And it's good to have you here. And we're going to have Mr. Eisman with us for the entire half hour. I want to go to what you and I studied, and he's always been associated with your Harvard, but the fact is he wrote his scientific revolution at Berkeley, and that is Thomas Kuhn and the paradigmatic shift. It's a word that I think is just hugely misused in investment and finance, and yet you're talking about a new paradigm. What is the new paradigm? Well, let me just add potential new paradigm. I'm not smart enough to know necessarily if it's going to happen, but I think it's something people need to think about. You know, what's a paradigm? It's something, it's basically the assumptions about how you think that are so embedded in your brain that it's similar to how you breathe. You don't even think about how you breathe and your paradigm, you don't just live it, you inhabit it. And paradigms in investing seem to last about, oh, eight to 10 years or so. So if you go back to the 90s, you know, people invested in, large conglomerates like GE until that story began to fall apart during the recession. You know, then they turned to large financial institutions from 2001 through early 2008. They assumed that uh, the people who ran those companies were geniuses until they realized that they weren't. And then with the Fed lowering rates to zero and keeping them there, you were essentially paid to take risk. And so people invested in growth stocks, largely technology stocks. And within technology stocks, the the stocks that did even the best were those with large revenue growth but negative earnings. And that's the paradigm we've been living in for the last 10 years. So what could change it? I mean, obviously, the Fed's at some point, and I have no idea when that point is, will stop raising rates. The real operative question is, Will they cut or will they leave them up there? Now, Powell keeps saying, I'm leaving it up there, and the market keeps saying, we don't believe you. So let's just assume, for the sake of argument, that he does cut. Then we'll go back to the old paradigm. People will invest in growth stocks again. But assuming you take him at his word, then I think the the days of just investing in in growth stocks and in hyper-growth stocks is over. Now, 
<clears throat> it's not over yet, assuming I'm right. I mean, if you go back to 2009, the financials had their last hurrah after the world fell apart and the government bailed everybody out. 2009 was a very, very strong year for pretty much every large financial company. And then in 2010, it was over. And it was over for 10 years. So, I mean, where do I think... I mean, people don't change their paradigms easily. Um, and so, sometimes they have to be hit on the head with a two-by-four multiple <laughs> times before they realize that the way they've been thinking for a long period of time is no longer right. Um, so, you know, what's going to happen this year? I have no idea. Is this, you know, if the Fed keeps rates high, will this be another great year for tech stocks and then we'll go into a new paradigm? I don't know yet. Well, it's they're too conditioned early. by price action, Steve. You know that. I get the sense from what you're saying that you might think that the rally we've seen here today is somewhat of a last hurrah for It might stocks. be. Like I said, if the Fed keeps rates high for a long period of time, then people are going to... You know, I'm, I'm not sure what the new paradigm is. I'm not Einstein, literally, who created a new paradigm. I'm not that smart. I'm not even close to that smart. Like, I, Let me emphasize, I'm not even close to that smart. <laughs> but... And where do I think it could go? I mean, maybe it just goes to a much more diversified portfolio. Um, maybe it goes a lot more to infrastructure-related companies. I mean, if the United States doesn't start spending, I mean, we're beginning to, but if we don't improve our infrastructure, all our bridges are going to fall down, literally. Um, so I'm guessing at this point we go to more diversified portfolios. I don't think tech will be dead, but it'll be more focused on companies with actual earnings. Um, People will focus on infrastructure companies. They'll be stock picking. That's where I think it'll go. Call me in a year, and I'll have a better idea. It's a different story. You can come back in a year. Well, I look forward to that. <laughs> in 12 months' time. Now, Steve, it's not just about what the Fed wants to do. It's what they should or shouldn't do based on the incoming information. So, as you pointed out in the last regime, the last paradigm, it wasn't just low rates. It was low inflation, low growth. Yes. Are there reasons to believe, based on what you've seen, that the inflation regime of the next couple of years will be higher, stickier than what we've seen in the previous 10? Are there I, reasons to believe that? Oh, I definitely think there is. Um, I mean, one, the major reason why inflation has been low, and it wasn't the last 10 years, it was more like the last 25, is that the supply chain of the United States and all developed countries moved out of those countries to Asia, China, where the labor and the costs were much cheaper. What COVID proved to everyone was that while that supply chain was cheap, it was also incredibly brittle. And that's been a, this is a two by four yeah. on multiple times. So companies realize they can't have a brutal supply chain because it means that if something happens, they'll have no products. So you're getting supply chain moving back to the United States and other developed countries. That means that, you know, the underlying so you'll have a more resilient price chain, but prices will be higher. You are famous for the big short back during the whole mortgage crisis. I was. <laughs> Is there another big short type of trade in this paradigm shift? Well, it's not in the financial sector, if you're talking about negative. the I mean, I would give applause to the vice chairman of supervision, the first one, Daniel Turullo, who completely changed the banks, lowering risk, killing leverage. So whatever happens, it's not going to happen in the banks. I mean, maybe it happens in private equity. I, but I, I don't think, given that 
this will probably be just, if there is a recession, it'll just be a run-of-the-mill recession, not a calamity. I, I don't see <clears throat> a crisis in the banks. Now, maybe it happens like in the UK in the pension funds. I don't know yet. I mean, maybe nothing happens and we just have a plain run-of-the-mill recession. That's my bet at this point, if we have a recession. I want to go to a chapter in the Michael Lewis book, The Big Short, which was a long quiet. Some would say the long quiet was the artificiality of low, low real rates that we've seen for well in excess of 10 years. We return to a real rate environment on the paradigm story. We can go from Thomas Kuhn to say someone like Nassim Taleb who says the gravity's come back into our financial physics. And then we go on to you that say we have to deal with a new paradigm, which to me is a... Potentially. A, a, but, okay, I'll, I'll come on, it's TV. Like we I got, said, we, not Einstein. Not Einstein, but, let's, but what's potentially here is a resurgence of real rates. Do you think we're going to see a sustainable real rates that gets us back to an environment like 2006 when you started the big short? I mean, look, I, first of all, I think there's a possibility that inflation goes back up. You know, you were mentioning before used cars. I just sold my used car and had 85,000 miles on it, and I got a price I was shocked by. So, I mean, I'll tell you one thing that I've been doing lately, which I haven't done in 15 years of I've been, you know, our group's been actually buying bonds, at least some bonds. And when we have cash, we either park it in a money market fund that yields over 4%, shocking, or we even buy, you know, three-month treasuries with the yield of 4.6%. I'll say it again, 4.6%. So, you know, the, the, as long as rates stay high, the uh, old paradigm of, what was it called? Tina, there is nothing, there is no alternative. It's, it's not true that there's no alternative. I mean, yet, when we tell our clients you can have something at very short-term duration with a yield of 4.5% with zero risk, you know, they're happy to park some cash. Dan Skelly of Morgan Stanley said the same thing this morning, get paid to wait now, quite literally, 4.5%, yes. 5%. So we've had these big moves in the equity market. Can we talk about the mix of what you like in equities at the moment? The likes of Rio, up more than 30% from the lows at the end of October. We're starting to see the miners outperform. We're starting I mean, the, to see the, the old I mean, economy outperform we've bought a couple. Of, we've bought some miners very recently. I mean, it's partially an infrastructure story. I mean, if you look at a chart of those stocks, I don't think they've done anything in 20 years. So, you know, assuming that the resurgence of infrastructure continues to occur, the miners will do pretty well here. Do you think that there is a, a bet to really go much more into bonds and cash, even as you play in some of the old economy that's coming to the fore again? In other words, can you give us a distribution that you're looking for? I mean, look, I think you can still invest in tech, but you have to be much more selective. We have a much more diversified portfolio right now. There's some infrastructure, there are a few financials, there's healthcare, there's some utilities, which is a story also of infrastructure. So, I mean, the, I just like I said before, the days where somebody has 40% of their portfolio in tech, I, I think is, might be in the past. I want to talk about the short-termism that's out there. You guys made a bet. I was mentioning the quiet, the, the, the chapter that was the long quiet uh, in the big short. There's a short-termism out there. We've seen the last time since we've seen you in here. There's the whole meme stop thing, the SPAC thing, blah, blah, blah. The answer is how does our audience get back to responsible long-term investment given how they're buffeted every day, every week, every month by the back and forth? Two by four. Like I said before, people have, I mean, people have to be hit on the head with a two-by-four multiple times before they start to realize that 
the I, th I do think the age of speculation of that intensity is probably over. I mean, if you look at charts, SPACs died. The like I said before, the high revenue growth companies with negative earnings got destroyed last year. They were down 75 to 90 percent. And people are pointing out that they've gone up a lot, but <laughs> they've gone up a lot. When you go down 90 percent and then you go up 100 percent, the chart doesn't look that different. You've mentioned that a couple times, being hit by a two by four. What does that look like in a market that was decimated last year that is facing what is looking like one of the biggest pain trades in the wrong direction toward the old paradigm that we've become familiar with in the past decade? I mean, look, we're having a resurgence right now. You know, if, if inflation starts to come back and the Fed either raises rates more than people expect or keeps it there, uh, people's taste for such speculation is going to erode. But like I said before, people don't give up paradigms easily. It takes time. So you know, maybe this is a year of um, the last hurrah, assuming rates stay high. I don't know yet. But something's going to happen, I think. Some people are guilty of becoming married to positions. Do you have a favorite position? How do you think about that within the portfolio? Do you have one? No, I don't. Um, I'm how, not, mar you, I'm not have, married to my stock. How have you avoided that trap? How have you avoided that? How do you go about doing that? I don't think that I should be married to any stock. I mean, you can invest long term. You know, people have invested in tech stocks for a very long time. They love them. They're married to them. But I, I don't see being married to stocks. Steve Eisman of Newberger Berman of the Eisman Group. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Joining us right now is John Stolfus, Chief Investment Strategist at Oppenheimer Asset Management. John, what a to catch up with you. I know you're more constructive than most, especially coming into 2023, and so far, so good. Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley this morning says price is about as disconnected from reality as it's been during this bear market. What would you say back, John? I'd say, I'd say, Darth Vader, uh, I disagree with you. Uh, uh, you know, let the force be with us. Uh, effectively, I think what we're seeing is that things are actually improving around the world. I think Lisa just, just mentioned it in terms of Europe, uh, the way things are looking over there, the better than expected uh, earnings so far. Uh, last I looked, I think earnings were off from fourth quarter for the S&P 500, around 2.5% versus expectations, I think, going into it, 3.5% or worse. Uh, I think uh, companies are doing their job uh, to navigate a rough environment overall. And uh, we have uh, the Federal Reserve doing the, doing the job to end the period of free money. 
and put us back on a more uh, realistic course uh, that should be good, but fundamentals uh, overcome momentum and, and high leverage. John, you were very articulate about extending a bullish call out to where we finally got a Stolfus market. We certainly have a Stolfus market. Around this is the trading and churning on the market. I thought of you when I saw this observation from Ben Laidler of eToro. In the old days, we used to hold stocks for years. Now we hold them for months. We've gone from a, a five-year year hold to an average 10-month hold. How do you do Stolfus optimism if people on a 10-month basis are pretty close to day trading? Well, I, gosh, I think that's that's a great question, Tom. I think more than ever before, there really is a, a, a recognition that there are at, at the at, at, starting from point one, uh, you have two different types of investors. You've got the short-term crowd, and you've got the intermediate to long-term crowd. Short-term evidence of fear and greed. And longer term, it's need and uh, it, the realization that uh, investing in innovation in corporations that uh, that know how to manage uh, their products and their services, uh, and this is the way to go for a, a portion of one's portfolio in terms of meeting the needs of whether it's a kid's education, whether it's a retirement. Uh, what have you, the serious goals. And the fun stuff is the day trading, you know. I mean, not for me. I'm an intermediate to longer-term investor. I'm a Buffett guy. Well, I am curious, though, John, at what point you start to get worried about the central banks going much further than they previously said they would if you do get this reacceleration. It seems like that's the preeminent concern among a growing number of investors right now. Yeah, I, I would say that is preeminent, at least among the trading crowd, for sure. And, and remember, the traders are closer to equity traders today are closer to commodity traders uh, from the past in terms of the way they position themselves uh, on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute basis. Uh, but we'd have to say the central banks are doing their job and are showing remarkable. Uh, ability to uh, to essentially, if not pivot or pause, and I don't think that's needed right now, uh, but to maintain a view that they're going to be vigilant against inflation, they're going to take action against this. I don't think any central banker around the world wants to be remembered as Arthur Burns is remembered. So what's your target for year-end, and what's the parameters, what's sort of the band that you see at this point, given that it is a highly uncertain time, and yet there does seem to be this growing sentiment of a no-landing? Well, well at least I've never known a period in, in 40 years, uh, almost 40 years in the market, when there has really been uh, uh, any certainty uh, in the market. Uncertainty is part of life, and it certainly moves through the market. There's never an all-clear signal uh, sounded. But we'd have to say, you know, our, our target is 4,400 uh, for the S&P this year, uh, with based on what we've seen coming out of the box or out of the gate, so to speak, at the beginning of the year, a chance that we may see that exceeded. Uh, right now, we'll stick with the 4,400. Uh, our main concerns are on the day-to-day -day basis, you know, are, are the ability of the market to oversell as well as to overbuy uh, in the near term. You have to curb enthusiasm somewhat uh, and keep, uh, keep a good business mind in terms of what you're investing in and, uh, and your courage of your convictions. Hey, John, great to catch up. The market certainly came your way in the first six weeks of this year. John Stolfus there of Oppenheimer.
Well, let's get to it. One of our most successful guests, she nailed bonds in 2022. Priya Misra, associated with a 10-year yield at TD Securities. Priya, I want to go inside to the two-year yield. How do you how do you look at the two-year yield? How do you establish a collar around how the two-year yield may act? Sure. So thanks for having me on. I think the two years is all about that end point of the hiking cycle. How long is the Fed going to keep it there? And then when are they going to cut? I think we should talk about when they're going to cut because inflation's likely to come down at some point. Now we're looking for cuts next year. But I think what is the market pricing of that end point, that pause, and then when do they cut? It's all going to come down to inflation. I think inflation and, and, and later on this year, I think it's going to come down to the labor market. The labor market is still very strong. So I think that inflation print we get once CPI tomorrow, you know, if core services X shelter remains strong, which is our view, the Fed is not stopping yet. I think they're going, in our view, two more 25s. I would say there's a decent chance of another 25. And then they pause. Again, I think it's going to depend on how quickly does that service inflation come down, which will allow them to start to cut rates. So I think it's only when we get into that two handle, two and a half, three percent inflation uh, sustained basis, can the Fed start to, you know, uh, make policy a little less restrictive. So we're looking for the two year actually. I would say the market's actually pretty well well priced for that end point of the hiking cycle. I do think the pause can be a little longer. So uh, uh, a little bit higher to uh, two-year rates is what we're looking for. So, Priya, we're dancing around it a little bit. Let's put you on the spot. Do you think we are sufficiently restrictive? Any evidence of that whatsoever? I think we are. Um, and I get a lot of pushback on that because the data is strong. So, number one, there are lags, long and variable lags. You know, I think we're in that process of lags. The, the, the fact that the consumer has so much still accumulated savings, now these savings are coming down, but I think that's actually widened that lag period. I don't think the lags are shorter. I, I, I know markets price it in, but for the consumer to actually start to cut back on spending, and I think they are starting to cut back, but the labor market is strong and I still have accumulated savings. When those savings run out, in our view, that happens in the second half of the year, that's when the consumer starts to cut back. So, you know, I think uh, policy is restrictive. Real rates well north of 1% is going to have an impact on the consumer. Um, you know, I think it just is going to take some time. We're in, we haven't had a shock to the system. I think the last two recessions have been shock-led, which is why the market's just waiting for the data to fall apart. I think it's going to be a slow grind. You know, it's like that last mile when you're running that marathon. It just, you slow down. It feels really long. I think we're in that uh, moment of the market's impatient. So that's why we're moving from, you know, hard landing, soft landing, no landing, I, you know, I still think that interest rates, real interest rates, well north of that 50 basis point that we think is normal, that is restrictive. It just is taking a while for that to slow the U.S. economy down. What does restrictive mean in terms of the likelihood of a hard landing, of a recession that a lot of people have written off? Sure. So I think, you know, what's going to be tricky is as the economy starts to slow down, can the Fed respond? You know, I don't think we're going to get any fiscal response. In fact, into the debt ceiling, we might actually get some spending cuts. What makes us more nervous about a, about a hard landing is policy is restrictive. The economy starts to slow down and then we wait for the Fed to respond. We wait for the Fed to stop QT, to start to cut rates. And we think the inflation environment is going to prevent them from doing that. And so if policy remains restrictive for longer, that soft landing very quickly starts to look like a hard landing. You know, Every hard landing sort of starts looking like a soft landing in the beginning. That's what I do worry about. Now, if we're lucky and inflation actually does start to come down, I think the Fed can respond and then we can perhaps get that soft landing. Well, so that It's going to depend on that inflation outlook. 
Just quickly, Priya, what does that mean in terms of 10-year yields? If there is this feeling of the first option where you end up with a hard landing, does that mean that 3.7% on 10-year is positive, is, is, is attractive right now, and that yield curve inversion could go much, much deeper? I do think it can it it can go uh, you know more deeper. I, I I think we're getting to that attractive level. You know, is three seventy five the highest we're going to get? We could perhaps get closer to four percent. I think legging into duration now does start to make sense. That I would say terminal rate pricing is pretty fair. The rate cuts look a little bit early in our view, but I think they are going to have to cut rates next year. I think starting to leg in three seventy five, add more as uh, as we get closer to four percent global rates. Watch global rates. I think. That can maybe push, uh, um, you know, the U.S. 10-year closer to four. I think you're getting to levels where duration risk is going to look more attractive than equity risk, more attractive than credit risk, even how much, uh, you know, credit spreads have uh, have compressed. And that was a green light from TD to start buying the 10-year. Priya Misra of TD. <laughs> Priya, thank you. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Right now, to sum all this, to speak of the greater economics and particularly the transatlantic economics, Megan Green joins us, Global Chief Economist, Kroll Institute, with her academics here and there, her work with the Financial Times. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. You wrote in the FT, I think, early December about the recession wait. Give us an update right now on the recession we're all waiting for. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this will be the most anticipated recession we'll have ever had if it materializes. And I have to say, now it looks less likely to materialize than it did two months ago, for example. But I still think it would be incredibly weird if we didn't get a downturn, um, given the aggressive rate, uh, pace of rate hikes. Um, the labor market has held up really well. Um, and I wonder if that's to some degree a result of labor hoarding. Um, we don't really have a great way of measuring labor hoarding. It's mostly anecdata rather than actual data. But I do think that labor hoarding could change on a dime if companies feel like their earnings are starting to turn, rates continue to go higher, um, then I think they might figure, well, maybe we should lay these people off rather than trying to get through this rough period by keeping them on our balance sheet. And when the labor market declines, that, that's what will right. spark a recession. One part of your academics, Megan, 
is the idea of aggregate versus the modern theory of looking at this, looking at that, looking at the itty-bitty things, and not the sum. What I find interesting is the parts of America booming. Torsten Slock at Apollo has a chart out this morning on booming air travel over the last five, six years. And yet other surveys, John Farrell mentioning one survey where half of America's flat on their backs. Are you aggregating EU, British, and American data, or do you have to break it apart? So I think looking at it more granularly is really important. In the U.S. in particular, given how weird the economic indicators are, um, it is wor worth looking at things by sector. And I do think that there is a chance that we don't get an overall recession in the U.S., but instead we get a, a series of rolling recessions where you have manufacturing and contraction while services are expanding significantly. Then services come off. So you get you know contractions, recessions in individual sectors, just not at, all at the same time, so it doesn't add up uh, into an overall recession for the economy. And that's just for the U.S. I think you also need to look at different sectors in Europe and the U.K., particularly when it comes to energy versus non-energy, given the uh, relatively big energy shock that Europe has experienced over the past year. The idea of rolling recessions, what does that mean for inflation, given there won't be one big shock that brings down the acceleration in prices and that you could still get you know, growth in other areas that keep propping up pricing power? So I think that means that we'll that inflation will be difficult to bring down. I always thought that to get from 10 to 6% inflation was going to be a whole lot harder than getting from 6 to 2% inflation. I think that continues to be the case, particularly if we have parts of the economy that are remaining buoyant and so are providing demand as the Fed is trying to lean against demand to bring it back into line with supply so that we stop getting an acceleration in prices. So I think it will just mean that inflation is more persistent than we had previously thought. I also think it's worth thinking about what inflation looks like when the dust has finally settled on the pandemic, on the war, on supply chain disruptions. And I think there's been relatively little thinking done on that. But I do think that, you know, if you believe that we lived in secular stagnation and that was driving low inflation, low rates, low growth, and it was based on an excess of global savings, we're all going to be spending a lot of money on defense, on the green transition. Um, you know, that could fundamentally be moderately inflationary at the end of the day. We could be deglobalizing. I think that's overblown, but on balance, that will probably be a bit more inflationary. So when the dust has settled, inflation may also be persistently <coughs> higher than what we had before the pandemic. There are a lot of different ideas here, and people are trying to parse through them. Probably the reason why people aren't talking about them more is because it's so difficult to quantify. Bill Dudley, formerly of the New York Fed, just out with an opinion piece talking about perhaps the Fed could go higher in terms of a terminal rate and keep it there for longer. What are you modeling out in terms terms of what you expect versus market expectations. How will you know what the sense is given whatever lag effects might, might already be in the system? Yeah, I wish we had uh, some metric for figuring out exactly what the lag is for monetary policy feeding through into the real economy. We just don't have a great handle on it. But I will say that I think the markets have been mispricing the Fed for a while now. Uh, so I think that Fed rates could get a bit higher than the markets are pricing. They could go a bit higher than even the Fed is pricing. And the, the markets are still pricing in cuts this year. I think that's unrealistic. I think the Fed will keep rates high through this year and maybe start to cut next year. It depends entirely, of course, 
course, on, on what the economy is looking like, whether we're in recession, going into recession. I don't think we'll be going into a recession in the first half of this year. So I think it will take a while, thanks partly to the huge cash buffer that companies and consumers have off the back of stimulus mm-hmm. measures when the pandemic hit. So, you know, I think it, that could be pushed out even further. That could be pushed out into the beginning of next year. So I think the Fed will hike more and keep rates higher than the markets are pricing. And Megan, do you focus on the United Kingdom? How many degrees of freedom has Governor Bailey lost? He's declaring victory. He was almost Churchillian, I thought, there is, you know, in the last uh, meeting as well. How constrained is Governor Bailey in working with the oddities of Brexit and the United Kingdom? Well, Brexit is clearly causing a lot of uncertainty in the UK economy, and I think that's probably been a drag on business investment, which really leveled off after the 2016 referendum and and hasn't bounced back since. And that's a drag on productivity growth. Um, Now, you can have wage growth, and it doesn't have to be inflationary as long as you have productivity growth. But what we have in the UK is really high wage growth, much higher than in the US, with much lower productivity growth. So there is a risk of that being persistent Consistently inflationary. And that's the challenge that the Bank of England really has to grapple with now. Megan, thank you for the brief. Look for your uh, next writings in the Financial Times. Megan Green is with Kroll uh, Institute. What a highlight for us to begin the year looking at the risks that Eurasia Group sees. It's really a wonderful, informative way for us to kick off the year. And we do that with Ian Bremer, who I believe did not have a risk like this in his power of crisis. Dr. Bremer joins us this morning, of course, the force at Eurasia Group. Ian, this is incredibly difficult. You and I have talked about this over the years. There's early Erdogan, there's middle Erdogan, and now there's Erdogan crushed. I saw on an internal feed on here on Friday of Mr. Erdogan and various leaders dressed in black. And the only image I've seen equivalent to it was Rudy Giuliani and Mayor Bloomberg after 2001. How does Mr. Erdogan and the people of Turkey regroup off 30,000 dead in southern central Turkey? You can't. Uh, it's it's staggering a hardship, um, and with thousands and thousands of bodies still trapped, um, and the survivor stories. Of course, everyone at this point feels like a miracle, um, but uh, the devastation being felt by Erdogan, uh, and of course across the border with much worse infrastructure as well in Syria, it's really uh, it's hard to fathom. It's hard to talk about. Uh, but, of course, uh, with, on your show, we're also talking about elections that are coming up in Turkey in May. Uh, and the fact is that Turkey has limited democratic institutions. Uh, this allows uh, Erdogan to have a lot more control uh, over what his people see over the media, as well as uh, how well the opposition can compete against him. And the reality of this devastation also means that the opposition has had to wait uh, in uh, coming up with their own, uh, you know, the consolidated candidate, uh, opposition candidate. So they're not able to run their campaign because everyone, of course, is yeah. now having to focus on this horrible, horrible tragedy. So, I mean, much as it pains me to say this, uh, the reality is that Erdogan comes out of this crisis a little bit more likely uh, to be reelected. Does he re-embrace Ian a view to the West and NATO? Does he look north within the very complex Black Sea politics with Mr. Putin? Uh, 
or does he look south as he always wanted to, to be an international voice in the Levant? Well, let's first of all recognize that even before this earthquake, Erdogan was perhaps one of the most effective international interlocutors between uh, Putin and Zelensky. He helped facilitate the Black Sea food deal. The only piece of good news, really, that's come out of this war over the last year. So that engagement has been helpful and the Americans appreciate it. Um, on top of that, of course, uh, with this crisis, you have countries all over the world providing humanitarian support, the Finns and the Swedes, which will make it easier for Erdogan to get off of his high horse and allow uh, that their NATO enlargement applications to proceed after elections. The Armenians despite their historic grievances of a genocide committed against them by Turkey, are providing humanitarian support. And they're doing that even as a blockade continues against the autonomous region of Nagorno-Karabakh. That will make Turkey more likely to facilitate a peace agreement there. Um, so I, I do think that Erdogan comes out of this uh, more of a statesman, more willing to be engaged with the Americans, with the Europeans. And I suspect, by the way, that those American F-16s will get cleared uh, by Biden um, in the months after the elections as well. Meanwhile, shifting a bit more to the east, Ian, when we talk about the potential risks, we have to talk about the UFOs and the uh, the plane, the uh, balloons that have been shot down above United States airspace. What are the t contours of a new Cold War between the U.S. and China that a lot of people are trying to game out at this point? Well, one, we're not in a new Cold War, and the Biden and she have both said consistently that that is the reality of today's politics, and they want to avoid it. That continues to be true uh, with what's happened over the last week. Uh, let's be clear, the American administration uh, believes that the purpose of this balloon surveillance program is a backup, a backup by the Chinese in case in a conflict with the United States, they lose their satellite capabilities, which are far more capable in engaging in surveillance than any balloons. In other words, if there were a military crisis over Taiwan, how would the Chinese be able to continue to assess, um, you know, sort of intelligence around the world, including principally for the United States? So the, the U.S. government at no point believed that these balloons were uh, reflected a significant additional intelligence threat to the United States at all. And that's one of the reasons why before this was made known publicly, before this became a headline, Blinken was still going to travel to China and meet with Xi Jinping. And the Americans had literally zero intention of shooting Whoa. anything down. But of course, once it got in the headlines and once you saw, you know, everyone standing up and saying, we've got to be tougher against the Chinese, then Biden had to pull off the trip. Then Biden had Whoa. to shoot down um, the balloon. And of course, that leads to more pressure on both sides of this relationship. Ian, that's exactly where I wanted to go. Do you feel like uh, the heads of both states, right, both uh, President Biden and Xi Jinping, uh, would like to ease relations, and yet the populations, the sort of nationalistic tone that a lot of politicians have drummed up in both economies, are making it difficult for them to do so? I'm not sure how much it's the populations at large either in China, not a democracy, or in the United States, where we're talking mostly about Congress. But it is both sides of Congress, Democratic and Republican. Um, and there's no question that you remember when Nancy Pelosi was making her trip to Taiwan, 
Biden didn't want her to go and privately was sending members of his cabinet to tell Pelosi, we'd rather you not go on this trip. But once that got leaked to the Financial Times and to other media, then Biden had to get on board. So we're seeing this over and over again. McCarthy's probably going to make his trip to Taiwan. That's going to make it a lot harder for the Americans to maintain this policy. So I do think both Biden and Xi want to, as they put put a floor under the relationship, but that's very different from where the government's going. Uh, Dr. Bremer, to use your Eurasia context that you have, it is a spectacular note from the U.S. Embassy and Consulates in Russia. It is dated 12 February 2023, and they're basically saying U.S. citizens get out of Russia. But what I find fascinating in it is the basic idea of, quote, the unprovoked full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Do you and your Eurasia Group analysts expect a full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia? Do You mean beyond what they've already done? Beyond what they've already done, something new, as the U.S. Embassy alludes to in Moscow. Uh, you know, look, I, I think that what we have seen is that the Russians, we've had 300 plus thousand troops go into Ukraine. They tried to remove Zelensky. They tried to take Kiev. I think that still is the ultimate intention of Putin, but he does not have the troops to affect that outcome in the near term. In the near term, um, they certainly want to have increased offensives to be able to take the territories that they have announced that they've annexed first time in my life. I've ever seen an annexation announced where the country doing the illegal annexation doesn't actually have control of the territories on the yeah. ground. So that that is where we are focused right now. The question really is beyond that: Are we going to see broader Russian, in, you know, asymmetric attacks against NATO? We've seen some of that increased okay. cyber attacks against the UK and Italy in the past couple of weeks. Right. That could clearly expand. Ian, we're out of time. Thank you so much for the brief, Ian Bremer. There on yeah. a number of topics. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.